Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. Come down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawnee man? It's second captain's football at the Irish Times. We've had two nights of Champions League semi-finals in Madrid, producing a goal average of 0.5 per game. Not great, really, but Real against Bayern at least provided us but a decent enough match and a hell of a performance by Madrid Ken with Gareth Bale on the bench and Cristiano Ronaldo 50% fit according to Carlo Ancelotti 50% fit and still well I mean you could tell that he wasn't really sharp um, the chance that he missed was really uncharacteristic although I think should have been offside bad header as well he did that free yeah. header earlier on I mean five shots though was, I think he had ten passes and five shots which uh, so it was a really you got Ronaldo in a really pure form Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, I mean, I was surprised when he missed that. But you kind of got the feeling if he gets another one of those, he'll score. And he, in the end, he didn't. But we are going to focus quite a bit on the failings of Bayern Munich, which shouldn't be overstated. They're one 0 down at halftime of this game. But because we're going to do that, that's why I wanted to kick off by asking about Madrid. Who I don't know, you can kind of forget how how good Real Madrid are, but because they haven't been European champions for a long time now. And you, yeah. you, but even the atmosphere before the game, the atmosphere at Atletico looked incredible. But even the Real fans, you can see you, you sometimes forget how much they care about the Champions League. Yeah, kings of Europe, and then this a, a banner behind one of the goals, which was like a collage of all the um, Real Madrid greats with Ronaldo at the centre of it. It was actually a terrible piece of uh, artwork. I mean, by the by the standards of these things, it was really bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, as for kings of Europe, that's something which they really believe. Um, I mean, I remember being in Munich for that for that Chelsea Champions League victory against Bayern, and the banner that they had: "Our city, our stadium, our cup." Was the was the Bayern banner? And you thought, I don't know. I mean, they were that was wishful thinking from Bayern Munich, but Real Madrid really do are of the firm belief, regardless of all the available evidence, that they are and always have been the greatest. And uh, if you want to beat them, that's what you're going to have to beat. Sid Lowe's in Madrid. We'll talk to him about both matches. The situation at Manchester United loomed over everything this week, though Liam Brady took great delight last night in the travails at Old Trafford. Yeah, they, they, they've got a crisis there, Bill, and yeah, it's no harm that they have a it's crisis. Great. He actually said, it's great to see, finally, they're having a, a good crisis. These things are not easy to get through, you know, says Liam Brady. I mean, he's had to, you know, he nearly walked out of that studio, of course, that time, when... Um, uh, well, Damon Dunphy was. This is a setup. That was what Brady was saying. Oh, when Arsenal were going they through, they put together some some footage of Arsene Wenger uh, behaving erratically <laughs> on the, the touchline. The point is, this can happen. Um, you know, this this can happen to uh, to anyone. Even Jose Mourinho, in his pre-match interview on ITV, was asked by Gabriel Clark what he thought of the Moy story, mm. which I was stunned by. I have to say, I thought it was a crazy 
I presume was an editorial decision and S. Gabriel Clark went off on a solo run and decided he was going to ask a manager who's half an hour away from leading his team out into a Champions League semi-final what he thinks of another manager getting sacked. Uh, Mourinho would have been absolutely within his rights to tell him that's a hugely inappropriate question. Mm. What he did say was no comment and uh, elaborated slightly on his no comment then was asked a follow-up question by Gabriel Clark on the big story of the day and gave a more ter- a terse, shorter uh, no comment on that one. So aside from, anything, aside from the inappropriateness, I thought, of the, um, of the question itself, it also only succeeded in getting two bland answers out of Jose Mourinho, which is an achievement in itself. Yeah, um, it, wa- it wasn't really the time to ask that question. I suppose if you're told to ask a question... If it's your job to do it, maybe you still shouldn't do it because ultimately the decision is up to you. You're the one you're, people see. You're on the TV one holding the microphone. The you're the one talking to Justin Mourinho, and you don't have to ask a question that you don't want to ask. So, the excuse about but I was told to do it by my boss. I don't know if Gabriel Crocker's offered that excuse. Maybe he really it, wanted it, to answer it, that, it, ask it, that question. It didn't seem to be something that anyone was commenting on in any Teddy great degree. I thought it was it was nuts. Uh, there's almost maybe there's a feeling with Jose Mourinho as an interviewer or as a TV station who are covering an event, you can take liberties with him because mm. he's almost a caricature of himself at this stage and he's co- constantly saying mad things about various subjects that you can just throw in any old question at any old time. You know? yeah. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's right. It's, why, why, why would he even begin to have to think about somebody else's job? It's an awkward one to answer anyway, but yeah. okay, if you're at a press conference or you're doing a feature interview or something, fine, but it's like, uh, hang on, Gabriel, I'm pretty tuned into this the task in hand here, which yeah. is trying to get to the Champions League final. Up against Atletico here. So. Louis van Gaal is looking more and more like a firm favourite for this Man United job, and we're going to talk to Raphael Honigstein today about that, Ken, mm. uh, particularly because, well, Honigstein is well-versed in Bayern Munich history, which is uh, where van Gaal applied his trade a few years back. Yeah, well, we thought maybe the, the time at Bayern, it's, it's by no means the most uh, successful, the most outstanding period of van Gaal's career, although it was successful, um, but maybe it's the most relevant to this Situation with Manchester United. I mean, a club that was in, I think, a similar position when they took over, when he took over, uh, and who he had some good success with. Now, uh, Honigstein had written about Van Gaal when he left Bayern Munich, um, and it was essentially eleven reasons why it didn't work out for Louis Van Gaal. Ultimately, this was, I mean, because he he arrived in the summer of two thousand and nine. Won the league that season, got to the Champions League final, which they lost to Inter, Jose Mourinho's Inter, and then got fired the next uh, yeah. season in April after things had kind of gone a bit pear-shaped. Um, so as Honigstein explains, uh, there was the table, obviously didn't look great. They hadn't done that well in the league. They were fourth in the league. Uh, a lot of their players had had problems in the World Cup, uh, which was summer 2010. There's another World Cup, of course, this summer. Um but a, a lot of the reasons that he gives out of these 11 have to do with clashes that Van Hal had with these uh, big beasts of Bayern, like uh, guys like uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, Uli Hoeneß, who were all, always full of ideas and advice about what they should, uh, about what should be done. You know, what about uh, if we did this in training? Or what about signing this player? Actually, I've signed a player for you in here. You know, he's a great player. And Van Gaal would say, Van Gaal would obviously disagree, almost on principle, would say, no, I, I, don't, want, I don't like these people telling me how to do my job. Uh, and, and was fighting with them a lot. The thing, was, the thing is with those guys, it wasn't the case of just you could have a meeting within the club and Van Gaal would say, no, I don't agree with your advice and I'm going to ignore your advice. And by the way, your advice is stupid. Yeah. And don't ever think to advise me about anything. Because they would then go to, and, and essentially hold a press conference and say, well, I've spoken to Louis Van Hal. He's completely intransigent. Yeah, you can't get through to him. I don't know what we're doing with this guy. And, you know, <laughs> this, that, it struck me that this is the kind of thing that doesn't really tend to happen at Manchester United. You've got a hierarchy which is mostly made up of faceless corporate drones who I think will be quite happy to leave Louis Van Hal to run uh, Manchester United as his own private fiefdom you know if we have a, an authoritarian manager who thinks he's right about everything all the better well not with regards to transfer policy or anything like that well I, I wouldn't say Louis van Gaal would have autonomy on who comes in and out of the club the other thing about Louis van Gaal though is that he's not really a guy who's, who's lashed out loads of money on transfers before and that might be another thing the Glazers might think you know I mean he, he's, uh, he's been criticised for his preference for young players because it's like well of course van Gaal wants young players you know, of course he wants a bunch of innocent kids who don't know better who'll follow his uh, orders like the members of a cult. You know what I mean? That's what they, uh, that's the reason he wants, you know. You know but the fact is that he's a guy who's, who's achieved 
um, great things with young players before. Manchester United, you know, could the young players in, the, in their reserve team, in their under-21 team, the players that they have out and loan, be any worse than the guys who have been there this year? Probably not in all cases. Oh, there he is, the Irish Times Wolf. And when old Wolfie starts howling maniacally like that, Ken, it means that it's competition time. If I was to push you really hard, Jeremy Paxman style, uh, on your, we don't have time to, to really go through the rigmarole, but yeah. if I had to push you really hard on your favourite bank again. Without hesitation, I would answer, that would be KBC Bank. Oh, that was easier than I expected. And of all the bank accounts in the world, your favourite type of bank account? Uh, that's probably the regular saver account at KBC. Of course, that's a weird coincidence, because with the help of KBC, we were actually just today offering one lucky listener the chance to win a €500 Euro cash prize. Nice and straightforward, you can do with the cash whatever you wish. Yeah, that's. I've got money on my mind now, and and my ears have pricked right up at the well, mention of the 500, 500 euro cash prize. That's not all, Ken, because that money will come in a special limited edition second captain's P-Bezo mug, along with super slick second captain's darts, just like in the critically acclaimed 1980s hit TV show Bullseye. For a total prize value Incredible. of 500 euros and 75 cents. To enter the competition, just visit irishtimes.com forward slash second captains where you'll see the link for more information visit the KBC regular saver page on kbc.ie terms and conditions apply and I don't need to tell you Ken that KBC Bank Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland time now for the report on sport um, so I guess yeah we'll we'll start on with those Champions League semi-finals um, and the statements of Pep Guardiola afterwards um, and he says he says I'm proud of my team remember this is this is a coach who who Throughout the match was looking quite stressed. I mean, you could obviously he's under stress. It's Champions League semi-finals. It's a, bit, it's a big time football, you know. Bar, Guardiola, the man who has to prove that um, all these changes of Bayern have made them better this year, better than the team that won everything. So all he has to do is win everything. That's the minimum. That's the minimum yeah. in order in order that he's not regarded as having taken the team backwards. Win everything. Um, so, uh, you know, on German television, there was Beckenbauer, apparently, you know, at halftime, was, was criticising the team. Was you know they should be look, they, They're lucky that Real Madrid haven't scored more goals. And this is a Real Madrid team who had barely touched the ball, you know, up to the point at which they scored their goal. Bayern had over 80% possession of the ball at that side. Nearly 90% possession at the point at which Real Madrid took the lead. Real Madrid took the lead with a brilliant goal. It was the kind of play from Cristiano Ronaldo, the half-fit Cristiano Ronaldo, Although he says he was, he says he was fitter than. Basically, Ronaldo said, "I'm fit. I don't know what the problem these doctors have is. Why are they always trying to get in my way and tell me I can't play?" Uh, Sergio Ramos was saying, "Well, we could see that Cristiano really wasn't fit tonight. However, he gave his heart and soul for the team, and that's what really counts." <laughs> uh, so Ronaldo, maybe because he wasn't 100% fit, ended up dropping deep and playing a beautiful slide reel pass, an Iniesta type of pass. Yeah. The kind of thing that he rarely does because he's usually the guy racing onto the end of a pass like that. Played this beautifully weighted pass for Contrao, who then, uh, a, a lovely cross then for Benzema, who finished it off really nicely. Swaggering finish by Benzema. And Real Madrid, having barely touched the ball, are suddenly feeling pretty good about themselves. And you could see Bayern then. It's really interesting to watch a team like that. The, Bayern, the, the identity of the team was, is already established when Guardiola arrives. This way that they're playing is a new thing for them. So how disciplined are they going to be about retaining that style? How, how much are they going to keep playing that way under pressure and with you know, the result maybe slipping away in this big game? You know, are, are they going to revert? Are they going to go back to what they maybe feel they really are you know, and start um, being a bit more direct? And the answer was really disciplined. The only player who wasn't is Arjen Robin. Now, I mean, Robin gets the ball. Every time he gets it, he wants to dribble with it. I mean, it's, it's completely different from every other player. And he kept losing. He was the only Bayern player, really, who was losing possession well, at all. Presumably, he does still have license to do that. He must, because otherwise he's not going to be in the team. Yeah, there's so. not much point telling Aaron Robin you're not allowed to dribble anymore. No. It, well, it was just interesting though, to see him playing an individual game and everybody else playing this collective game. Now, when, uh, when Guardiola was so successful at Barcelona, obviously, Lionel Messi was... Doing, he's he's now got Arjen Robin doing Lionel Messi's old job. Yeah, he's, I mean, I like Robin. I think he's really good. But 
you know, you can't really compare the two. You can't compare the two players no. um, in terms of quality. Um, what Guardiola says is, I'm, uh, and, and there was lots of criticism of Bayern. They were like, oh, you know, this is the great Bayern. Well, you know, you're touching the ball a lot, but you're not doing anything. Now, what are you doing with that ball? Just interfering with it. You know, it's not, you're not uh, directing it at the goal. I think that there was a particular amount of criticism because it was Real Madrid they were playing against and there was a, an assumption maybe that Pep Guardiola should know by now how to break down Real Madrid and how to play against them and how to get into their heads and all those things, whereas it didn't look like that at all. It actually looked like Real Madrid had worked out Bayern Munich's plan better than Bayern Munich were able to counter whatever Real Madrid had done. Well, let's say Bayern Munich's plan is a lot more complicated than than Real Madrid's, or what what they were trying to do is a much more difficult thing to do. Mm. Real Madrid were seeding the... Real Madrid were the... We're not the dominant team in the game. They were seeding that to Bayern. They were letting, they were saying to Bayern, okay, you make the game. What does the dominant gonna, team mean, though? The, the team that has the ball, the team that's but deciding that the how, what kind of game it is. Yeah. Well, were the, Real Madrid not deciding what type of game it was? It was a counter-attacking game. It was a game in which they soaked up pressure and ultimately scored more goals and created more chances. They weren't the team that was... That is was, that not what domination is? No. Domination is not, domination is not they, giving the ball to your opponent and letting, and letting him do whatever he wants. And maybe then, it is these days. I don't know. I, I do think it's 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 interesting. I mean, because we saw a real clear difference there. What what Guardiola said uh, is Madrid are the best counter attacking team in the world. The faster you take the ball to them, the faster it comes back at you. They've always been a counter attacking team for a long time since I was a player. They sit back and hit in the counter. Now, to, in Guardiola's way of looking at football, this is an insult. He's he's insulting Madrid. He's saying, "Okay, you got your win, but I would never. I would not play that way. You know, it would embarrass me as a man." to play the way that you play. That's not what I think football is about. Mm. Sit back and wait for the other team to make a mistake and then try and score. That's that's not being a man. What a man does is he takes that ball, he advances to the edge of the opposition penalty area and he plays the ball around looking uh, to find it to, for a chance. But he, he's got the ball. He's the one playing the ball around to his teammate. He's the man. And then what have you got on the other side? You've got this, you know, the, uh, it's... You know, it's not. Uh, it, it would be incompatible with Guardiola's view of what the, what football is for. You know, just sitting back waiting for a mistake. Is it a bit simplistic to say that though? From oh well, ever since I've played, that's a long time. I, I think it, I, I thought it was a bit of a bold claim from Guardiola because I think that the Real Madrid team um, of you know Zidane and Figo and so on actually was quite uh, an attacking team. Um, you know, they they did try to to make the play themselves. Uh, they had extended spells of possession. Yeah, I don't think they were really... I don't think you'd call them a counter-attacking team. Now, the Madrid team of Mourinho, and I suppose of Capello uh, before him that won two titles, um, not both with Capello, I don't think, but they, they, that, they, they, they're definitely counter-attacking teams, sure. There's no doubt about that. Now, uh, I mean, when we look at the semi-finals, three of the teams out of the four are counter-attacking teams. And it's... Uh, okay, here's a bit. Here's another bit. I'm from this thing I keep referring to, this book, uh, the Mourinho book, Diego Torres. Diego Torres, and it's this is this is this is Mourinho when things like late stage Mourinho at Madrid, and he's always obviously wanted to play, wanted them to play in the counter attack. But here he is talking to them before the game against Dortmund. Um, this is the first game away at the Westfalen Stadium. This will be the game of the lost ball. Now, this is kind of significant because it's kind of, it's almost the, the point where he really tells them what he really thinks about football. This is what I really think. And don't lose the ball was Mourinho's order of the day, a forward summary of his strategy. The central defenders don't come out of the area in possession. Um, you play a long pass. You don't, you don't mess about. You don't. You don't try and. The team associated short passing moves with problems and long balls forward with convenient solutions. One touch football created fear, but the long ball broke out. This match will be the match of the lost ball. Should be seen as part of a code. One, the game is won by the team who commits fewer errors. Two, football favors whoever provokes more errors in the opposition. Three, away from home, instead of trying to be superior to the opposition, it's better to encourage their mistakes. Four, whoever has the ball is more likely to make a mistake. Five. Whoever renounces possession reduces the possibility of making mistakes. Six, whoever has the ball has fear. Seven, whoever does not have it is thereby stronger. So he's essentially saying the ball is the enemy. Yeah, he said this before. He said that after the Inter-Barcelona uh, semi-final second leg. 
Mm. I'm almost certain. Yeah, uh, he did. Uh, yeah, much yeah. more concise version than he said in public. In the in the in that case, though, he could say he did have a player sent off. Exactly, yeah. he could say, "Well, look, you know, extreme situations call for extreme measures." But what this is claiming is that, in fact, there with eleven players with Cristiano Ronaldo and all of the great players that you know the okay the, the, the discussion here is Abaloa, Casillas, Ramos, Alonso, Higuain, Benzema, Ozil, Marcelo all ask themselves, really. Is that really what we're going to do? You know, especially the Spanish players thinking, well, we just won the World Cup playing with the ball. You know, you can actually do it if you're good enough. We believe we are. Um, he's saying, you guys aren't that good. <laughs> yeah, Xavi and Iniesta you know, carried you on their backs for that yeah. World Cup. Look, if I had Xavi and Iniesta, I, I wouldn't be saying all this. <laughs> but, you know, instead I've only got Alonso and Ramos. <laughs> so what we're going to do is give the ball to them and then hope. And that's... That's what uh, we saw, obviously, Chelsea do. But to an extent, it's what we saw Atletico do. You know, Atletico were not a team that were trying to really uh, move up the field as a team and try and pass the ball around and create uh, chances by their passing. They were like, let's hit the big man early. Oh, there are a lot of diags. Oh, yeah. And I think it probably, you know... Maybe in, in the Spanish league, this is a bit more effective than it is going to be against John Terry and Gary Cahill, who, frankly, I can't imagine the kind of match that they'd rather play. Yeah. I, I Actually, I loved watching the Diego Costa and Terry macho posturing. Yeah. It was the best thing about the game. Just this, all this... Uh, One in particular, there's an incident early oh, on yeah, where yeah, yeah. It, it looked like a fair enough tackle by Terry, but he booted the ball and maybe took a little piece of Costa. Costa turns around really slowly, walks yeah. back towards him, the two of them looking beyond Thomas, <laughs> just walking into each other. It was very funny. They're both, look, they both have this thousand yard stare sort of beyond each other. And then they sort of, you know, bump, uh, bump chest, bump shoulders. And you're thinking, yes, this is what football is all about, really. You know, when you get down to it all, this, this kind of macho confrontation between these preening egomaniacs is what I want to see. Uh, but Guardiola, maybe a little bit, sounding a little bit, we, we can, we can recognize the, the, the cries of Barcelona when the same thing happens to them and they lose a game against a team that, that defends. Madrid have athletes. They're footballers, but they're real athletes, says Guardiola. So, again, when he's saying athlete, it's, it's almost like a criticism. It's like, oh, you know, it's all about muscle with you guys. It's all just this brute force muscle, run fast in the other guy. That's not football. You know, that's, you guys should be in the Olympics. You know, this isn't, football is about winning the ball, getting on with the play. No, that's not what football is about. Football is about having the ball and dominating your opponent with the ball. You know, that's what it's... That's, that's Guardiola's football. Anyway, we're going to talk more about this with Sid, but Chelsea are carrying through on their threat of <laughs> playing a weekend team, is it? Well, this is... Like, Mourinho just... You know, he's, he's literally turning to the Premier League and saying, OK, you, you guys won't help me uh, in Europe. You won't reschedule games to help me. Fine. Yeah, I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to undermine the integrity of your competition, if that's the case. You see this title decider that you're happy with? How do you feel about me playing our under-8s team against <laughs> Liverpool? You know, Liverpool will probably win that match, but my hands are tied. You know, doing the handcuffs thing. My hands are tied by, by you. It's, it's you, the Premier League, who make this decision for me. Um, this, is, this is kind of what Mourinho is. He's saying, I'm just the manager, though says the Mourinho who's wearing a lot of track suits recently. I don't know if he's making one of these Rafael Benitez, I'm focused on coaching and training the team type points. I'm just a manager. I'm not the club. I have to ask the club if I can if I can do that, you know, after but the news today is that Chelsea's the, the Chelsea's hierarchy endorses Jose Mourinho's plan to throw to not throw the game. I mean, that, no, we should be clear. That's the, not the Chelsea hierarchy couldn't to, couldn't endorse a plan to throw the no, game. They're endorsing a plan to throw in a couple of reserve players <laughs> to, to throw, the team. That's it. That's exactly it. Throwing it. But you know, when I look at this, I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical. To be honest, I'm not sure it's going to be that weak a Chelsea team when we look at uh, compared to what they could play. Petr Cech's out. He's injured. We know that, which means they'll probably have to play Hilario the third goalkeeper. They could play Schwarzer, but what happens if Schwarzer gets injured? You know, he's 41. They may have to play Hilario. Is there that much of a difference between Schwarzer and Hilario at this stage? Mm. Is there? I imagine mm. they'll play Schwarzer anyway. I would have thought you'd need to get him more games. Schwarzer, yeah. I mean, he could, he, he, he may well play. Um, John Terry's probably out. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure yet how significant his injury is, but it didn't look great. Um, Gary Cahill, 
probably going to play. He plays most of the time. Ashley Cole, well, if he plays, it's hardly a disaster for Chelsea. You know, Azpilicueta, again, another guy who doesn't, I don't, I don't think, have a problem playing a lot of games. I wouldn't be surprised if he played. Lampard will play, I assume, because he's out of the semi He's out. Uh, Matic will play because he can't play against Atletico. He's, he's cup tied. Um, John Obi Mikel, I guess, will play because he's also out of the, the Wednesday match. Uh, or at least he's available. You know, David Luiz, they could rest him, but is there really any need? Is there any need for him anyway? And it's, well, I imagine he'll probably go in at centre half. Um, but what would be the point of really resting him? Torres, will they rest Torres? <laughs> does it make any? <clears throat> does it make any difference? Is Dembaba is playing Dembaba a weakened team compared to playing Torres? I'm not sure. Mm. Ramirez is, is probably going to be banned. He couldn't play anyway. Yeah, potentially. It's Ivanovic is probably going to be back in. Right, yeah. You know, so I don't know. I mean, what, what swings there is the couple of suspensions they have. Lampard is suspended. Um, is Mikel suspended? Was there an, was I believe, a yeah, second Mikhail. player picked up another yellow card? Yeah. And you mentioned Matic is cup tied. Yeah. So there are three guys there who are absolute first teamers yeah. and will be in this weakened team. Salah. But just can't play. So it works out that yeah. kind of it almost fixes itself. It's almost there's no real issue here, but Mourinho has made it into an issue. I think I think it's I think Mourinho is doing two things. Number one, he's trying to he's having a pop at the Premier League because he does think this um, timing of games is something that they should start doing to suit him. Uh, and number two, maybe he's playing dead a little bit, you know, because he goes to Liverpool, and if he can get the idea about that we're a weakened team or we're you know our part, this isn't our priority, maybe he gets a maybe some Liverpool players are thinking, well, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure like if Liverpool did fall for something like that, it would be, it would be. But there's a lot, you know, there's people are almost talking about Liverpool as though they've already won. Oh, they? I was watching the game last night with a friend of mine who supports Liverpool. And he was tearing his hair out towards the end of the panel chat on RTE. Eamon Dunphy said something along the lines of, well, you know, Bill, this is only one year of uh, one title that Liverpool have won. <laughs> Can they go and defend it next year is a question. It was honestly something as, as bold as that. Yeah. And he was saying, my, my friend was there going, no, please, could everyone stop doing this? Mm. Uh, so certainly Liverpool supporters are feeling the pressure again. Yeah. It's that very small sample size of one is anything to go by. Yeah, I mean, look, th- three games, three games from winning the title... You'd imagine they, they're not going to be listening to anything Mourinho's saying. Just focus on winning those games. And then um, they have announced though, a plan to redevelop Anfield. And people will have seen, I'm sure, some of the pictures of this up to 58,800 um, by, tw- by 2017. I think they're hoping to have this done. Um, uh, and it essentially involves um, sort of gigantifying the, main, the current main stand uh, at Anfield. So it will be this huge structure almost looming over the other three. Uh, the Anfield Road stand, the, the one opposite the cop end, will also be expanded to some extent. But the uh, mainly, it has to do with the main stand. And I imagine when you look at it, that uh, while the, this the, they're adding, they're going to be adding fourteen or fifteen thousand seats uh, to the total capacity. But I imagine the big change will be in the composition of seats. Mm. Um, that a lot of the additional seats are going to be uh, expensive tickets you know, for corporate tickets or whatever, whatever, hospitality tickets, whatever you want to call them. And how many did you say they're adding? What sort of it's up to, up, it'll be up to 58,000. Why uh, have they not already done this? I was, oh, another issue is around the Hicks-Gillette era, but um, I, I, if, if this was a possibility, why has it not been done before? Now? I thought the whole, uh, whole issue was, oh, we can't redevelop Anfield, uh, there's not enough not enough space. Not enough space. There, well, I mean, there's, there's obviously loads of space. There's a whole, potentially the whole surface of planet Earth to play with. Um, the problem is not owning the space. Mm. So Liverpool have now finally apparently agreed deals in principle with all of the property owners whose properties effectively would be demolished to make way for okay. this. So you can, you can, it's quite a simple situation, I suppose, really to understand. I mean, if you owned one of those houses and you had this like super club, um, uh, it wanted to expand their stadium and you knew that they were paying. You know, you, you need the kind of salaries they're paying their players. You think to yourself, well, how much money are they offering for my house that they need to own to demolish in order to... How much money are they offering? Is that really enough money? I'm not sure. You might even have a chat to the neighbours. You might get Paul Stratford in. Together. To say, listen, I'm not, sure if we, uh, I'm not sure if we get in fair value here. You know, just considering the way we're being trampled on. And, and there, there was a bit of that going on. You know, there, there was a big, there's a big issue that, about that for a while, that they, they had been buying up properties piecemeal, then leaving them boarded up, you know, to, to rot. 
as a way of... Oh, driving other people out. Yeah. Or maybe potentially making it yeah, less... You know, uh, is, is there really much of a future for this little area here? You know, right. which is not, which is not great, really, is it? Um, we just we should just mention, we're, we'll talk about Van Gaal with, with yep. Rafael Einstein a bit, but um, just the, the ongoing Manchester United fallout. Mm-hmm. Man United players not coming out of it very well, I don't think. And all kinds of little stories of, of uh, you know, the kind of stuff, I suppose, you're not really... There was a, a story in the Times about the Olympiacos match, one of the players shouting out as Moyes went to argue with the fourth official late in the game, send him off, we'd be better off. Uh, this is this is apparently one of the players overheard by Steve Round, Moyes' assistant, you know. That's, you know, that, is that, is that seems a bit much. Um, story... Uh, I saw in the Daily Mail today about Ryan Giggs. No, I mean, there's no quotes in it. It's 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 simply, uh, I think it's Ian Ladyman who has the story. But the that, that the story was about Moyes having punished um, the young players, uh, including Danny Welbeck and I think Tom Cleverley, for being out after the Bayern Munich match. They were out, like, you know, the next day. Uh, the next night they went out in Manchester. I mean, they were off at the time. But he punished them. I suppose these photos ended up, and maybe the impression was that, oh, look at them partying, mm. fiddling while Ron Burns, Danny Welbeck. You know, in fact, Danny Welbeck is like a 24 year old guy who has the night off. The next day off, he's gone out, so what? Um, but my side was a problem, punished them. Ryan Giggs cancelled otherwise. Uh, Giggs agreed that his teammates were unwise to be out in the town so soon after a high profile defeat, but argued that they had not broken any specific rules. He also suggested that Moyes would not have taken such a hardline stance with some of the more senior members of the squad. So there's Ryan Giggs. Just, I mean, I guess when you look at it, he would have made a much better decision than David Moyes. Ryan Giggs, as we kind of discussed on uh, Tuesday's show this week, Mm. is coming out of this as the... Maybe the John Giles figure in David Peace's fictitious version of what happened at Leeds United. Of course, the fictitious version that we, we, we should emphasize that version was fictitious. Indeed. Um, that version, that fictitious version of John Giles had him as the bit of a schemer behind the back of... Yeah. Um, not too happy with the manage, managerial appointment and maybe with... Des- well, definitely with, with designs, according to David no, Peace. I mean, and Ryan, and Ryan Giggs, you know, he's been there a long time. And, I, you know, one of the things that happens is... Do, does the, I mean, Ferguson obviously chose Moyes, but maybe not everybody within the club would. How could he be? What about me? What about me? Does he not think I have potential? You know why this? There, there was one of the things in the other David Peace book, actually, Red or Dead, the the one about Bill Shankly. Um, obviously, the Liverpool board didn't leave it to Bill Shankly to decide who who he was choosing. Um, he resigned, and then. Uh, he, I think he had a few ideas. There's a scene where he has a couple of ideas about who he thinks might be a good person to come in. And they say, oh, no, it's actually going to be Bob Paisley. And they're like, and Shankly's like, Bob Paisley? You know, he's, he's worked for, with Bob Paisley for 15 years, but it never enter, enters his head that maybe he could actually come in and take over. You know, he just hadn't really thought of it. Maybe something like that was going on, you know, with some, some men. I mean, this Keane thing as well with Van Hal. I don't know. I, I wait to see now if there's. A, this we, is Roy Keane being linked as the number two. Yeah, to Van Hal. we'll wait to see if there's anything a bit more concrete on on Van Hal, I suppose. Before okay, Keane, the one, and we will talk about Van Hal. I do have to say, one of the risks of it has to be at this point that he's going to the World Cup with Holland. What happens if Holland don't do very well at the World Cup? Yeah, and the, there seems to be a date that's been mentioned by the Dutch Football Federation. Uh, well, essentially, they're training camp starts and whatever date it is say the 7th of May or something mm. and that, that's when they all get together for the first time and according to one of the reports I read today the Dutch the what, what, what's in KNVB KNVB uh, want any decision uh, if anything to do with Van Hal's future needs to be done by that point which seems a bit ambitious because but well, either beyond before that point or at that stage Van Hal's not going to be talking to anyone until mm. after the World Cup, mm. uh, which is probably fair enough from the point of view of the Dutch Federation. To be honest, they should be able to, if that's... If Man United target them, they should be able to get it done mm, in the next I few weeks. So. You would have thought, yeah. It's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. I want to book a holiday. I want the flights, the hotel, some flattering new bikinis, a big silly hat, and nice dinners in local restaurants with cute waiters. And I want... No, I have to be beach ready. So I need to be a regular saver. KBC understands spending is easy, but saving is hard. 
That's why we have a range of savings options with tempting rates that make savings simple, so you can save when you want and spend when you want. Visit kbc.ie, call 1-800-515253 or pop into any KBC hub in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway. KBC, the bank of you. Terms and conditions apply. KBC Bank Ireland PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. I expected more from Real, says Arian Robin. I expected them to come storming out of the gates, but instead they waited and allowed us to run the game. That surprised me. Now, aside from the fact that they actually lost the game, uh, it's an interesting comment. Sid Lowe joins us now. Sid, should Robin have been so surprised? Well, I think he shouldn't have been surprised in so much as both managers after the game said that the game was exactly the way they expected it. Um, Ancelotti said he anticipated a Bayern Munich side that wanted the ball and that Brownwood would largely play on the counter-attack. He, he accepted that. As, as the most adequate policy, particularly as, as it had worked so well for Real Madrid in the, in the Copa del Rey final. And Pep Guardiola said it was exactly as he'd anticipated as well. So I think for, for one of the players to be surprised probably is, well, a bit of a surprise. I mean, but we, we were watching Barcelona, Bayern Munich rather and they were very similar to, to what we remember from Barcelona at times, you know, that, that emphasis on keeping the ball. Certainly their uh, post-match uh, cries of, uh, their indignant cries about how defensive Real Madrid were sounded a lot like Barcelona. And um, Guardiola said something quite extraordinary, I thought. He, he just threw in, um, Madrid have always been a counter-attacking team. Uh, so sounds, sounds rather provocative. Does, doesn't it? And there were a couple of, of kind of sideways remarks from from Guardiola in the preview that were provocative. In that, in that he effectively pointed out the existence of Florentino Perez as the president. Now that doesn't sound particularly provocative, but this is a man that, that Guardiola has tried not to even name normally. And so I thought that was quite interesting. But you know what? After the game, in terms, of, um, while that was a relatively provocative line, I actually thought. How, that, how, sorry, said. How do you how do you mean? What did he say about Perez? I mean, this sounds completely not an issue at all, but, but given the context, I think it is. So, for, for example, before the game, um, Guardiola had said something along the lines of, you know, Real Madrid are a great club. They've got, they've got, they've got fantastic fans and fantastic players and a fantastic president. And knowing what we know about what he feels about Florentino Perez, I thought that was an interesting line. And then after the game, he said something about the second match being back at our stadium with our people and with our directors. Now, I, I felt that was um, a sideways comment about Florentino Perez. It may also have been a comment about his own directors, of course, who have been amongst the people who have been most critical uh, of Bayern's approach. Yeah, now, one, of them's in, one of them's in jail as well. I mean, I'm, I mean there's Beck, <laughs> Beckenbauer was complaining. Yeah, so he, won't be at the, he won't be at the game, which, yeah. which I don't know if that helps Bayern Munich or not. Um, and specifically in terms of you know, that question mark about the counter-attacking, to be honest, I thought within the context of the way that Guardiola was, was analysing it, I don't think it was a, a, a whinge, really. Um, I, I think there was probably a sense of frustration, but I don't think it was a whinge. I think it was more he was trying to justify his approach rather than necessarily belittle Real Madrid. And, of course, the reason why he had to try and justify his approach is that it's an approach that had come under criticism from people from within his club. So when he talked about the counter-attacking game, he said that you know Real Madrid have got such brilliant athletes that even if you had the fastest centre-backs in the world, you wouldn't necessarily catch them. And he said, and people want us to be more vertical. Um, in Spanish terms, I suppose that really means kind of a little bit more direct, a little bit quicker, a little bit more um, going for the throat. But the quicker you go to them, the quicker they counter-attack you. And so he seemed to be suggesting they wanted a, a patient and a careful and a possession-based game. I suppose the counter-argument to that would be that that actually the way to stop Real Madrid, if you want to be patient and, and you are worried about their counter-attack, is to sit a little deeper and not allow them space into which to run those counters. Yeah, and we're all intrigued to see what they come up with at home, Bayern Munich, because this is such a great position for Real Madrid to go to Munich in, 1-0, no away goal conceded, and presumably a much fitter bail and Ronaldo, Ancelotti after the game said that Bale, that uh, sorry, Ronaldo was 50% fit and obviously Bale only got the last 20 minutes or whatever it was. So uh, the prospect of what they could do in the counter-attack in Munich is surely quite frightening for Pep Guardiola. Yeah, and I think it's not another indication of the fact that the idea that playing the second leg at home isn't necessarily an advantage. Now, I'm not saying it, it, it's not always beneficial, but it's not necessarily one because, of course, one of the key factors may well be away goals and that can now be changed by Real Madrid, but can't be changed by Bayern Munich. Um, I think on the counter-attack, you're right that in theory, at least, they should be fresher, they should be they should be faster than they were this time around. Ronaldo, off the game, by the way, was furious in the mix zone. Um, he, he said that there were some people who didn't want me to play, but the final choice has to be mine, which I think hinted at a, a, a sense that the, the, the recovery 
from this injury has taken longer than it should have been, or maybe the initial prognosis has taken longer than it should have done. And I think Ronaldo's not very happy about that. Bale had been sick the night before the game, so of course the likelihood is that he'll have shaken that off by next week. So both of those two should, in theory, at least be quicker. But it does pose a very interesting question for Real Madrid, which is that reading between the lines, and, and, and I admit it's always risky to do that, but reading between the lines last night, I thought that Ancelotti admitted that he prefers not to have to play three men up front that he prefers to, to, to be able to kind of leave one of Bale or Ronaldo out or one of Bale, Ronaldo and Benzema out. And of course, if those two and Benzema are all fit, then he can't play this 4-4-2 that, that worked so well yesterday in terms of trying to deny Bayern Munich space and deny them the ability to, to, to open up the game. And um, so I think that in itself is quite intriguing. I mean, actually, it wouldn't be fair to call it lucky, but he has been able to take advantage of the bad luck this year and that injuries have have effectively, if you like, encouraged him into decisions that have actually worked pretty well. Yeah. Well, he's a guy who, who always plays the hand that he's given, uh, Carlo Ancelotti. Exactly. Um, exactly, yeah. Different maybe from, from certain other managers who were in Madrid uh, over the last couple of days. But, I mean, if, if he did decide to leave <laughs> Bale and Ronaldo... If he, if he decided to leave Bale and Ronaldo out, it's the kind of thing that... Or Bale or Ronaldo, rather. It's the kind of thing that could maybe sh- um, shorten the remaining length of his tenure there at at Real Madrid. But is that something you think maybe Ancelotti is amenable to? Because, uh, I mean, with this whole vacancy now at Manchester United, um, most of those guys who are in Madrid seem to now being, everyone apart from Guardiola, being linked with the job in one way or another. Is Ancelotti not happy where he is? I think that, I think that Ancelotti, I mean, obviously this is not saying anything new, but, but Ancelotti is, is a manager who's worked with some very, very difficult presidents and owners. Uh, and handled that extremely well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he likes it. It doesn't mean that he likes to, to have imposition. It doesn't mean that he likes to feel like his authority is undermined. It doesn't mean that he likes to yeah, um, messages come back that, that basically he hears that the president has been slagging him off and saying he's no good. Um, and, and elements of all of those situations have happened at all of his clubs and are happening at Real Madrid. Um, now, Ancelotti, as you say, he plays with the hand he's dealt I think he recognises that in terms of the players, this is an extremely strong hand he's got at Real Madrid, that he's got very, very good footballers indeed, and that the chances of success are extremely high. So I don't think that he is actively looking for a way out, but I think if the opportunity to leave um, in, in a good way, having won things and going to a good club, then I must confess... I think, and this is more interpretive than, than informative, I think that, that he would be tempted. Really? Yeah. Uh, how tempted? It's very difficult to judge that, because as I say, I think a lot depends on, on, on the way that the, the, the exit would happen. I think a lot depends on, on, on how convinced he was by, by what he's offered elsewhere. Um, so he wouldn't, want, is the, he wouldn't want to make enemies in leaving Madrid? Is that the case? But exactly. if, maybe if he won the Champions League, he could walk off. Exactly. One of the things that Ancelotti has done for his career is he's, he's left all of his clubs extremely well. Um, he's, he's, he hasn't wanted to have a fight with anyone. Um, he's picked and chosen his battles while he's been at clubs, and I think he's chosen them largely pretty well, and, he, and, he, and I think he's tougher than he, than he sometimes appears. I also think he's, he's very, very adept at, at basically not caring about, about minute details of, of, of little bits of perceived, um, what's the word, kind of perceived lack of respect. I just don't think he's bothered by that. But after, over a period of time, of course, he is bothered by it enough to think, well, maybe it would be better to be somewhere else. That's an interesting take on it. Said the other game, of course, was uh, less entertaining. I think we all agree with that. It was funny, any other time I've watched Atletico this season, they've been this sort of force of nature and they just look, uh, just incredible dynamism to their play, which just seemed to be lacking somewhat. Maybe it was Chelsea's defensive plan, but most of the decent chances that Atletico manufactured were crosses to the high, deep crosses at the back post and a few headers, which wasn't the most exciting um, way of trying to break Chelsea down. Were you a bit, did you expect a bit more from Atletico? Um, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure that I necessarily did because I think that, that Atletico Madrid this year have been, uh, they've started out as a, as a clearly counter-attacking team. As the season's gone on, they've evolved into a team that have pushed people back a lot more, been a bit more aggressive, created more chances. But they're still a team that have, 
um, made a lot of chances of balls through the through the gap and over the top for Diego Costa to run into that that space, which is where he's he's so so effective. They're a team that scored a lot of goals from set plays, and you look at the number of goals scored by the two centre backs from corners, for example. They're a team that have used crosses into the box where the width has been provided more by the fullbacks than by the wide midfielders. Um, so actually, their approach didn't surprise me enormously. Subtlety in terms of you know clever little threaded passes in very tight space has never really been something they've done particularly well this year. Um, the player who can perhaps most most effectively do that would be Diego Rivas who started or other Turan who came on. But I, I think I think in terms of the way the game went, I wasn't hugely surprised. Um, I think the Atletico Madrid to some extent came up against a side that plays in a similarish way to them, although although far more extreme. Uh, I thought Chelsea's defensive approach was was entirely legitimate, of course, but much, much more extreme than Atletico Madrid have, have done this year. Um, so in that sense, I'm not hugely surprised. And, and again, we talk about the, the, the significant, potential significance of the away goal. Of course, Chelsea played for a nil-nil and, and seemed satisfied with it, but it may not be a bad result for Atletico either. No, I don't think it's a bad result at all, actually. I saw the Chelsea players congratulating each other on the field after the game, and I thought, well... I don't know if they're trying to give the impression that they're happier than they are, but nil-nil is not a great result. But I, get the, I, I also got the impression, Sid, that part of Jose Mourinho would have quite enjoyed inflicting that match on the, on the public in Madrid. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think there may, be, may have been... A, 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 I think it's more that, that for whatever reason Mourinho decided, OK, look, let's, let's reduce our chances of being caught out here and let's, let's do an all-or-nothing at Stamford Bridge, which, uh, I mean... As I say, I've always been a defender of a, of a coach's right to play any way that he wants. But when you look at the difference in in, in value of the two squads, when you look at the, the the strength of players that Chelsea have got, despite the absentees, and obviously it's in, of course it's significant that Hazard wasn't available, for example. Of course, it's significant that Samuel Eto'o wasn't available. But but I must admit, I, I expected more from Chelsea in the sense that I didn't. Have- them to not play so defensively. I expected them to play defensively. But I expected them to look for the counter-attack once in a while. I think they probably only looked for it about twice in the entire game. Yeah, fair enough. Sid, we'll leave it there. Great stuff. Thanks, Mel. My pleasure. I'm interested that Sid is um, quite, well, certainly not, not, not cold on the idea of Ancelotti becoming the next Manchester United manager. Yeah. A name I must stress, Ken, I threw into the hat there on Tuesday. Yeah, you're, you're a confirmed Ma- uh, Carlo fan. I'm an Ancelotti Anchomaniac. Anchomaniac. He is... I I like Ancelotti as well, but the thing about him is that I... What I think Ancelotti does really well is is kind of keep things ticking over. And I'm not convinced that he's... I I think that Carlo Ancelotti is a well-rounded human being with a good perspective on life. Uh, He doesn't sweat the small stuff. You know, he doesn't really... uh, He... He he understands that sometimes in life you've got to put up with a bit of. Not everything is is perfect from your point of view. Sometimes you just got to roll with the punches, and he's managed to do that successfully at uh, Juventus. Well, not so much at Juventus actually, but at, certainly at Milan, at uh, Chelsea, at Paris Saint Germain, and now at Real Madrid. Uh, frequently working with the biggest egos on the planet. Um, in the case of men like Berlusconi and Perez, and. Usually getting on with them pretty well, you know. He's a guy who, you know, I, I think if he went into in at Manchester United, he'd be able to calm everyone right down and get everyone in a broadly good frame of mind. But against that, because I don't, I don't think he's one of these guys who, like Guardiola or or Mourinho or or Van Gaal who sees their career as the single most important series of events in the history of the world. Like this is my my career, and this is like to view themselves almost like as a messianic figure of historic importance. I don't think Carlo Ancelotti deludes himself like that. But maybe you do need to if you want to really take a club that's in a bad situation as Manchester United now are and really give them a kind of fresh energy. I don't know if he's the most energetic kind of a leader. He He's a guy who would come in... Uh, he was perfect, I think, to follow M- Mourinho. You know, a, a, a team structure that was quite... Or maybe he would have been perfect to follow Ferguson. Yeah, but not to follow Moyes. I think so. I, I honestly think so. It, to, to come in after Ferguson, I, I certainly think things would have gone better with Ancelotti rather than Moyes. But yeah, maybe and now at, they that, need... at that point, Manchester United, maybe there might have been a couple of years of not winning titles but qualifying for the Champions League, for mm. example. And Manchester United the fans then would have then the expectations are lowered somewhat, and maybe it's easier for the the 
the guy after the guy after Ferguson. Mm. Whereas I don't know if it is that easy for the next person now. They have a lot to pick up and Man United are in a position where they're not in the Champions League. Yeah. There seems to be an assumption that, well, it's grand, you're not going to be compared to Ferguson. But actually, you will you are. be compared to Of course, everyone will about, be. Moyes was such a disaster that everyone's going to forget about comparing you yeah. to David Moyes. It's like Moyes, it's an asterisk <laughs> next to that whole thing. Now it's like, let's see... Um, how, how you do compared to Ferguson. Raphael Honestein wrote a very interesting piece three years ago, roughly, about why Louis van Gaal's tenure ended in failure, really, at Bayern Munich. And he joins us now to talk. There's a lot of momentum around the Van Gaal to Man United story, Raphael. So I guess the obvious question is, would he be the right man for Man United? Not easy to answer that question. In many ways, I'd, I'm tempted to say yes, because he likes to work with young players He's not one of those coaches who comes in and says, I need to sign three or four superstars. The opposite. He fell out with Bayern partly because he refused um, their demand, the board's intention to sign new players. He said, I don't need new players. I've got the likes of David Alaba coming through. So I think those words would be music to the ears of the Glazers. Mm. Now, the problem that he has had in, in Munich was that he fell out with his superiors quite spectacularly and also seemed very intransigent. When it, came to, when it came to his tactics. And the combination of bad results and having no one to fight his corner ultimately because he alienated so many people upstairs um, really made it as his dismissal inevitable. Is the structure at Manchester United very different though than it is? Well, maybe not. Ned Alex Ferguson is up there, but by and large, there, there doesn't seem to be the same, certainly the same public sniping in the media uh, about managers as there is at Bayern Munich when things go wrong. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, there is a running commentary um, being delivered by Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, by Franz Beckenbauer, even though he's no longer in charge. Uh, it used to be Oli Hoeneß's. Um, and, uh, and other players or ex-players around Bayern. The problem that Van Gaal had was, initially he dealt with it rather well. He just sort of ignored it or, or played, played his part. But then... After they qualified for the Champions League final, somewhat surprisingly in 2010, he then uh, lost his mind a little bit and uh, wrote this book. And, and then uh, at the introduction of his book, said um, he recommended his boards to read the book because they would learn about football that way. <laughs> he seemed to be very, very adamant that, uh, to show the likes of Rummenigge, the likes of Hoeneß, that he understood better football than him. Now, whether that was a Dutch-German thing, I'm not sure, or whether it's just the way he, he functions, but he ultimately over, overreached. And, uh, and Ole Hoeneß very famously came out and said, well, he was like uh, somebody who considered himself above God. You couldn't argue with him. It was his opinion, and uh, he would not accept other opinions. And, of course, Bayern is very much about compromise because as a manager, you can't just sign your own players. You have to listen to what the board does and, and vice versa. And there was a just complete breakdown of, of uh, communications. Sounds like a lot of great managers, actually, that, that sort of being convinced that you're right all the time. Um, and, and as for, you know, disagreeing with what the Bayern directors say, I think Guardiola might uh, have a few issues with, with um, some of the things, judging by some of his recent comments. But, I mean, in the case of Van Hal, it's, a, it's an incredible record that he has. I mean, everywhere, every club that he's been at, um, he's been successful. Probably the only real failure on his CV is the first sign that he was the Holland uh, manager back um, when Ireland knocked him out of the World Cup. I mean, when we look at his record specifically at Bayern, because that's the most recent big club that he's managed, um, it was initially a huge success. I mean, Bayern, I think, when uh, when he took them over, were in quite a similar situation to the one that Manchester United are in now. Um, and... You know, having having had a, a, a bust of a season really under Klinsmann, at least they managed to get into the Champions League for the next season. But he he took this squad and won the league and got to the Champions League final. It's a phenomenal achievement. It was, and uh, it was really a classic case of a board getting rid of one manager and then trying to adopt the exact opposite of, of Klinsmann. Now, Klinsmann was the young guy, the guy with the new ideas, the energetic guy. It didn't work, so they wanted somebody very very experienced somebody who guaranteed a level of stability. And maybe in that sense, you can maybe draw some comparisons with United and, and the post-Moyes era. The problem with Van Gaal was that he was just incredibly high maintenance. Um, it wasn't just uh, the, the good results went hand in hand with alienating, as I said, not just the board, but also some of the key players. Couldn't deal with his very disciplinarian approach. Uh, he famously 
um, <laughs> pulled the ear of uh, Luca Toni when he was slumping at the dinner table uh, in Timothel. Luca Toni uh, would have been like 35 uh, or something. When, when, yeah, you, when you say slumping, are we talking just one of those a bit tired after dinner kind of thing? Yeah, he wasn't sitting up upright. All so, right, okay. I mean, he has this sort of headmasterly uh, streak. And, uh, you know, some players respond very well to it. Some some don't care because they just get on with it. And some, like uh, Luca Toni, like Franck Ribéry, um, you have to talk to them slightly differently. And while they were winning, it was fine. But then in the second season when they had a bit of resistance and also when key uh, when, when opposition coaches worked out how they played, uh, then it was quite a spectacular fall from grace. And he was fired with Bayern sitting in fourth spot. And this was by far the best team in the Bundesliga, player by player. Dortmund hadn't even started to, uh, you know, to come back yet. Um, before he was fired. They had this great run in the second half of the season when he was gone. So um, it's not easy to answer to come back to the original question. He has a lot of things going for him. He knows football. He knows how to set up a team. He can really instill an identity on the side. Mm. But is he a long-term prospect? Is he someone who guarantees you sort of smooth running of a club? I have my doubts. Well, maybe it doesn't matter so much as to whether Van Hal himself is a long-term prospect. You know, the idea of Van Hal maybe being at Manchester United for 15 years is obviously ludicrous. But maybe that's not what, you know, top coaches really are, are about anymore. I mean, Guardiola the other day saying, I want to be here for two more years at Bayern. And maybe that kind of limited, uh, you know, I'm going to go to a place and hopefully do a lot of good work in a, in a finite space of time. Maybe that's a better way for a top club to look at it than the idea that we're trying to find another Alex Ferguson. I think the thing that would be quite attractive to anyone or to, to Manchester United when they look at the record of Van Hal is that the identity that, that you mentioned that he would bring to the team is really the, it's the, what we're talking about here is the Ajax team that won the Champions League in, in 95 and, and nearly again the, the second year. Basically the same type of football that the Barcelona team that has dominated uh, Europe over the last decade uh, we're playing. And then obviously Bayern Munich, who, who now seem to be the dominant uh, team succeeding Barcelona. And Louis van Gaal has been an originator there. Is it giving van Gaal too much credit to say that, um, to say that the, the current uh, Bayern Munich team, or that, that he established a lot of the structures, a lot of the things that makes this a special team? No, no, I think you absolutely have to credit him for that. And uh, some in the buying board are reluctant to do so for personal reasons. But I think a lot of players will tell you that uh, what Jupankis uh, did was to build upon the foundations of Anjal. And then in, in Guardiola, somebody's come in to take them potentially even further. So, yes, he has that going for him. But he's not an impact manager. I think this is, this is important to understand. He came in and took about three or four months uh, with constant changes, playing some really weird formations or seemingly weird, like 3-3-3-1 three, 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 at times, um, playing people in lots of really strange positions um, until he settled on a, on a team that worked. And even then, um, in the second half of the se- second in the second year, he then uh, made the system so dogmatic that when key players uh, were injured, he wouldn't change the system but put, put left-backs into midfield, uh, had strikers played in, in unfamiliar situations. So it it didn't quite work out um, to the point where you could say he was brilliant um, in everything he touched. He, he introduced a lot of good things, but had a lot of negatives as well. And if he'd been a little bit more consistent in terms of results and also in terms of his handling of, of players and the people above, I think he would have still been in the job a lot longer. But he wasn't. And he made a lot of mistakes. Uh, the disciplinarian approach that he takes and that has led to him falling out with players, as you talk about there, Raphael, might that be something that actually works better and is more welcomed by Premier League players? Alex Ferguson was the arch disciplinarian. Uh, Arsene Wenger, maybe slightly different approach, but he did come in in the mid 90s and told his players to, you know, stop putting so much ketchup on their deep fried chicken burgers and this kind of thing. And and maybe it's it's gone past this because it's such a globalized game now. But the sort of English mentality maybe takes better to being told what to do rather than uh, maybe German footballers might want more of a say in things and might want to chat with the coach about what they should do. I think the problem isn't so much between English and non-English or what the nationality is. The problem is if you bind to the manager's methods, 
you will also then accept his disciplinarian streak. Ferguson got the team to win, so they, they took everything that came with it, and for them, that constituted normality. Now, as soon as a manager is just being seen as being disciplinarian, but you don't believe in what he does on the pitch and the results are not good, then these are the first things to come and bite you. And, you know, ultimately that's what happened at Bayern. As soon as results went south, um, there was very few people left in the dressing room who had any real investment in him as a coach. They all liked what he'd done. Most of them liked what he'd done with the team tactically, but they also uh, saw his limitations and they also realized that he had managed to alienate the most expensive player on the pitch, Frank Ribéry, who a year later, um, with Duke Heinkes coming in and putting an arm across the shoulder, man-managing him completely different, was the key player and taking Bayern to two successive Champions League finals. So it's not just a case of disciplinary yes or no. You have to blend that with an expertise and with results because one without the other, I think, as also David Moises has found, just doesn't work. The one other question, I suppose, about Van Hal is that he may have felt, as he was taking the Dutch job for the second time, that most of his his um, you know his big time work at club level was behind him. You know, having managed Barcelona, having managed Bayern, that maybe he wouldn't get back to one of the really big clubs in Europe. Uh, he is now sixty two years old. Uh, I don't know, Raphael, if you attended this event um, that the football writers in London put on to honour Jose Mourinho um, a few months back. Um, but at this uh, thing, anyway, Louis van Gaal, it turns out, was one of the guest speakers. It was Frank Lampard was one, van Gaal, uh, Mourinho obviously having worked with van Gaal at Barcelona. And apparently he said something like, yeah, you know, Jose Mourinho, he was a great uh, assistant to me um, uh, and, and he's, he's gone and done very well. In fact, he's now a better manager than I am. He said, he said this, which, you know, uh, you know, nice that he would, he would pay Jose Mourinho such respect, but it strikes me as not the kind of thing that someone who still considered themselves to be, you know, right at the top of their game would say, even if they were turning up at a sort of uh, thing to honour uh, Jose Mourinho. Yeah, I think it's a good point, and that's probably something that he would regret if he were to be appointed a Man Man United manager. I don't think at the time he had any realistic aspersions on the job. He maybe felt that he might get a job in the Premier League in a club that wouldn't be in direct competition uh, with Mourinho's Chelsea. So things might change there. Um, I think what what attracts him is, is simply the fact that he is always somebody you feel, maybe because of his experience uh, at Barcelona, where he won a lot of things, but not the, uh, the important uh, trophy that he was uh, hired to, to win, of course, in the Champions League. And, and maybe with this experience with the Dutch in 2002 failing to qualify for the World Cup, that he still has a sort of slight chip on his shoulder. And he wants to show that uh, he can win titles and, and be in charge of big clubs. And I think it is his ego rather than, than the financial incentives that really drive him to to being very much on the record and saying I want his job uh, with United and I think that's a, that's a good that's a good sign um, he'll, he'll be somebody who'll be absolutely desperate to win and, and, and invest heavily uh, work and, and, his, and, his, and his heart in, in this job but like I said I think he'd, he'd be good um, there's a lot of things he could get right but there is a downside and there's a, there's a danger here that he will not sort of provide the sustained success and immediate success that people are looking for. Sounds like you're not convinced. Raphael, great to talk to you. Thank you. Pleasure. We'll tweet a link to Raphael's piece that, uh, that he wrote a couple of years back, but uh, it seems pretty clear that he thinks there are too many downsides, I think, to, sounds like it anyway, to Van Hal. We tried to put a few positives to the Van Hal tenure there, Ken, or a few uh, riders in there, but he seemed pretty clear that I just didn't, didn't quite work out for him. There was a, a very fair point that he made that if you're disciplinarian, that's all well and good if things are going well. But uh, if not, then you know it's it's, some, it's a little bit different. But I don't know if we're reading with too much into Van Hal's comments at that writers' night for Jose mm. Mourinho. Maybe he was just maybe, maybe. It was just a bit of BS. Maybe. Yeah. Van Hal doesn't strike me as the kind of person who thinks anybody is a better coach than he is. No. He was at an awards due for Jose Mourinho. Yeah. I don't know. Ken, I don't know how much public speaking you've done, but sometimes you're. You're rattling your brain for something to say at those kind of things. <laughs> Maybe he just thought, okay, I know what the crowd will love. If I say Mourinho's better the than me. The biggest compliment I could ever pay anyone is to say that I think he might actually be better than me. Uh, I, I'm literally capable of no higher 
compliment than that. Maybe that's what Van Hall thought. I don't know. I happen to think that he would be good choice for Manchester United. Very good. I think he knows. Um, I think he's he's uh, an experienced sort of authority figure. I don't think he'd be there necessarily very long. Maybe two seasons. But you know, um, he he might leave things in good shape. I mean, the, the thing about him is that he has left clubs in good shape. Even when everybody there has ended up hating him and and been you know had a party when he's when he's left that kind of situation. They're better. They're better after than before, and that's a very good thing, I think, for anyone to be able to to say. Do have a listen to the first show we put out earlier on today, which features Shane Jennings, who was in studio, and a really interesting take on Toulon and what they're gonna, what Munster are gonna have to do to try to stop Toulon. But Shane was also very interesting on his own feelings when of jealousy is what he called it when watching Munster in a Heineken Cup semi final like this, uh, considering Leinster aren't going to win the competition this year. We also talked bit about Jason Quigley's move into the pro ranks with uh, Oscar De La Hoya's Golden Boy promotions and we had a chat with Nicky English about the madness in Limerick hurling at the moment so well worth a listen to all of that Ken by the time we bring the next football show at the start of next week will Liverpool be virtually crowned Premier League champions or will Chelsea will the weakened but stronger Chelsea have <laughs> toppled them and allowed Man City in to steal the Premier League um, do you, I, don't, I don't think Chelsea are going to win that game so a draw and a draw would be grand for Liverpool at this stage, wouldn't it? A draw means they'll still win if they win the last two games. Yeah. But really, Liverpool should be looking to win the match, you know, to win it and and to and to give themselves a, a bit of breathing space. I think I think they should. We'll leave it at that. Strong. Like, I'm saying they should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm saying I think they will. I'm saying if if they don't, we're going to have to have a major inquisition. Ooh. Into into their failings. Well, maybe I want them to lose now. I, I mean, I, I think like most neutrals can. I, I think you can't begrudge Liverpool a title, but I, I do like these inquisitions that we have from time to time. So oh, could, maybe I want them to lose. We could be uh, be uh, hunting a witch <laughs> uh, come Monday morning. Join, join us at the witch hunt on Monday. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 